Romans 8, verse 28, down through verse 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your golden chain of salvation, that by this glorious truth, we may see the assurance that all things work together for good to them that love you and are the called according to your purpose. Give us wisdom as we consider these matters that you might write your words upon our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our study of Romans 8, verse 30, looking today at glorification, our second installment of this, the church's glorification. Last week we looked at Christ's glorification. We saw that it was in six phases. First, his eternal glory. Second, the glory of his sufferings. Third, the glory of his resurrection. Fourth, of his ascension. Fifth, of his sitting at God's right hand. And sixth, the final judgment and the resurrection of the saints. We saw our duty to wait patiently for the full glory of God's saints, as that will happen when Christ is finally glorified at the resurrection. We saw that our glorification also comes in phases, and we'll consider this in more detail as we look at the scriptures today, Lord willing. We saw that Christ's glory is the grounds and foundation for our glorification, and our duty then to glory in Christ himself, in his person, as the eternal God made flesh, in his obedience even unto the death of the cross, in his mighty resurrection, his glorious ascension, his sitting at God's right hand, ruling over all things for the benefit of his church, and that we ought to love the day of his appearing, to long for it, to hasten unto it, to use Peter's term, that great day of God, when sin, death, and this old world will be abolished and immortality brought to life at that final day. Now to consider the glorification of the church. As we saw uh, John Murray, all five elements, he said, are coextensive in this passage, verses 29 and 30. The sustained use of also and the repetition of the terms foreordained, called, justified, in the three clauses in verse 30 signalize the equation, that is, all who are foreknown are predestined, all who are predestined are called, all who are called are justified, and all who are justified are glorified. There is a chain that is unbroken throughout this whole. William Plummer in his commentary concerning the past tense of glorified says the past form of the verb does not teach us that all the elect are yet glorified or justified or even called. It simply declares that election and predestination are in every case and ever shall be followed by effectual calling, pardon, acceptance, and glory. This form of the verb may be after the Hebrew and indicates the certainty of the things declared. You find this throughout the Old Testament. Oftentimes things are put in the past tense because they're so certain that they will infallibly come to pass. So that's what he's saying. Infallibly, those that are foreknown were predestinated. Those predestinated will infallibly be called. Those called will infallibly be justified and glorified. Having reviewed then these matters, let us consider the scriptures concerning the glorification of the church. Please open to Matthew chapter 6. We'll do a survey of the scriptures of the New Testament concerning glory and to glorify as it respects the church of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 6, 
page 966 of your Pew Bibles. Starting at verse 1. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. Now you might ask yourself, this is a, a bit of a strange passage here. What does this have to do with glorification? Well, very much. In fact, when it says that the hypocrites seek for men to give them honor, it's the word glory. They're seeking to be lifted up by men, that men would give them the glory and the esteem and the praise, that they would be exalted in the eyes of men. Now, this does not teach that you can't give alms while other people are present. That's not the point. That would be a formalism. Well, I'll do everything secret and I'll fulfill this commandment. No. He says, to be seen of them. Do not your alms before men with the intention that they will see you because you want them to glorify you. You want them to lift you up because that's all the reward that you're going to get, Jesus says. You want men to, to be pleased with you? You want men to glorify you? You want men to honor you? Well, that precludes God from honoring you because now you, you have made man into your God, in other words. But notice here, after having addressed the temptation to hypocrisy and the desire to be approved of and glorified by men, he's warned us against that and said, you have no reward from God in that case. Then he comes to how you ought to do this. When thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. In other words, you think you're going to blow a trumpet if you don't even know what you're doing? Now, it's a figure of speech. It means don't publish it abroad to others like the hypocrites are publishing. Hey, look at me. I gave gifts to this person over here. Aren't I righteous? Yay, you're righteous. Everybody thinks you're righteous. Well, there's your reward. That's it. You don't get anything from God, he says, because that's your intention. That's your purpose. When thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Why? That thine alms, here's the purpose, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. Let me ask you, when is God going to reward his people openly? Well, it's at the day of judgment. It's at their glorification. You want the glory of men, you won't get the glory that comes from God. And we'll see this in more detail, God willing, in other passages. Glorification comes from God. If we seek it from men or other creatures, guess what we don't get? The glory that comes from God. That's what he's saying. It's one or the other. You can't have both. Please open to Luke chapter 2, page 1026. Luke chapter 2, verses 27 through 33. These are the words of a man named Simeon, a just man, a devout man. <clears throat> he was inspired by the Holy Ghost to say specific words when Christ came with his, his parents to the temple, to Jerusalem. Verse 27. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, 
Then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marked, marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Notice here, Christ is said to be the salvation of God's people and their glory. Do you remember Psalm 62 that we looked at last week? My God is my salvation and my glory. My refuge is in God, he said. So here, notice, Christ is the salvation of God's people. He's a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Let me ask you a question. The Gentiles sitting in darkness, how does the light come to them? Through Christ. The Jews who will be glorified by God and exalted and lifted up, how's that going to come to them? Through this little tiny baby that Simeon is holding in his arms who has come to be circumcised after the manner of Moses. This baby Jesus will be the glorification of his people. Salvation and eternal glory, the light of the gospel, comes through Jesus Christ to his people. Turn over to Luke chapter 9, please. The glorification of God's people. Luke chapter 9, page 1038. We'll read verses 29 through 32. I want you to notice the glory here. Of course, Peter, James, and John with him as ordinarily was the case. And as he prayed, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. By the way, glory is often associated with light in the Bible. So when his garments are white and glistering, you know what that's saying? His glory is pouring out of him. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Remember, that's one of the glories of our Lord is his sufferings. They're talking, they're appearing in glory. And they speak of his decease, verse 32. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Now, did you notice there? They appeared, Moses and Elias did, in glory, didn't they? But then when the apostles awoke, what did they see? They saw the glory of Jesus Christ. Whose glory then did Moses and Elias have? What was it that made them shine and be glorified? What was it? It was the same glory that Jesus Christ possessed in himself. Christ is the glory of Elijah and Moses. The saints of God, as holy as Moses and Elijah were, is not in themselves. It is his glory. They appear, Moses and Elijah do, in the glory of Jesus Christ reflecting off of them, so to speak. As members of the body of Christ, their head radiates glory onto them. Turn over to Luke 14, please. Page 1047. We'll read verses 7 and following. Our Lord speaking in parables. Luke 14, verse 7. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, 
when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. And when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up hither. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now I want you to notice something extremely important here. When it says that thou shalt have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat, the word is glory, doxa. You will be lifted up and exalted. And that's what he says at the end, isn't it? Glory and exaltation are almost synonyms in the Bible. Lifted up, shining bright with light of great power and glory. That's the idea of glorification. But notice here, what is it that comes before glorification in this case? What is it that happens prior to the exaltation, humbling yourself? Do you think Jesus is giving lessons on etiquette here? Because if you do, you're kind of missing the point. The point he's making certainly has application to a wedding feast. It has application to all kinds of scenarios among men. But what he's talking about is whether or not you will make it to glorification. Whether or not God will glorify you. How can you know? Do you exalt yourself? Because if you do, God's going to throw you down to hell. And if you humble yourself, God's going to raise you up to his heavenly glory. In other words, he's preaching the gospel. You must see your sin, that you are a wicked person deserving of judgment before God, and not that you're some righteous person who can sit in judgment on our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are well, you do not need a physician. If you are dead, you need a miracle worker. And so the gospel says, what do you think of yourself? Do you think you're a good person? Go to hell, God says. Do you think you're dead in trespasses and sin? Come up to heaven, God says. Seek the remedy in my son. Exaltation, then, is preceded by humbling ourselves. Do you know that's what happened to Christ? Christ, not merely our substitute upon the cross, is an example for us. The cross before the crown, the grave before the throne at God's right hand. And do you know what? The same goes for us, Paul says in Romans 8, as we'll consider. Please turn over to John chapter 5, page 1070. John 5, verses 43 and 44. Now the saddest part of the ministry of our Lord is the stubbornness of man's sinfulness. We would all like to think that people are basically good, even if in theory we know it's not true. And we'd like to think that if, I don't know, somebody raised dead people, took away blindness, maybe healed lepers or made bread into thousands of people, just a couple loaves into feeding a thousand and more. And we might say, well, certainly people would believe, right? <laughs> no, they wouldn't, as a matter of fact. Verse 43, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Now, notice, the honor that he's talking about is our same word, glory. 
Glorification comes from God. He's the one who lifts up and exalts his people. If you are looking for men to glorify you, to give you worship and praise, to honor you and acknowledge you and think you're great, you cannot believe the gospel, period, full stop. The question is a rhetorical one. How can ye believe which receive honor of another, one of another? Well, the answer is you can't. You cannot believe if you seek for the honor of men. And then he says, if you do that and you seek not the honor, the glory, the exaltation, the promotion, if you don't seek the one that comes from God, you know, you're, it's one or the other. They're mutually exclusive. You push in the honor of men, out goes the honor of God. You want to be glorified by God, you can't be glorified by men. That's it. No other choice. Faith is impossible when we seek to be glorified by men. Please turn over to John 11. Eight pages over, 1079. The famous account of the death of Lazarus. Verses 20 through 27. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Here, notice a few things. Christ Jesus himself is the resurrection. He is the life. Now, we'll see in John 14, God willing, this evening, concerning Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means if you would like to have a pathway to get yourself right with God, to be reconciled and come home to the Father, there's only one way. And though there were many types and shadows of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and though there are many deceivers and frauds, there's only one truth, that is Jesus, the true life. And... Though there is much promise of having a good life by philosophy or wisdom or this or that, there is only one way to have eternal life. That is through the Son of God. So then, how is it that any will be raised from the dead? How is it that anyone will have eternal life? Where will they be able to find it? How will they secure this eternal glory? Because that's what glory is. It's resurrection and eternal life. It's reigning with him in the kingdom. It's reflecting his image and his glory. How's that going to happen? By being united to the one that is the glory. The one that is the resurrection. The one that is the life. Even Jesus himself. So then, the glorification of the church happens because she is united to her head and her husband, Jesus, the Son of God. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He secures it. He paved the way. He's the forerunner, and he shall secure it for all of his people. This is what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. Please turn over to chapter 12. Page 1082. 
verses 37 through 43. Now remember what I said. We're not basically good. And this will make more sense. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Notice here, all that Jesus did was so compelling that many among the people had to say, if this isn't the Christ, he's never coming. If this is not the promised one that Moses and David and Isaiah spoke of, if this isn't the one, there is no Christ. This has to be the Messiah. They believed. They acknowledged. But would they say so before men? They would not. They would not say the same thing that Christ said. That's confessing. We can confess sins by saying the same thing as God. We can confess Christ by saying the same thing that he says about himself. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. That's confessing Christ. But notice, the reason why they would not take that second step is because they loved one thing more than another. Now, we see twofold causation in this passage, don't we? We see God blinding their eyes, hardening their heart, preventing them from repentance. But did you know that God always gives men what they want? What did they want? They wanted the glory of men. That's what the word praise means. They wanted men to lift them up and to speak well of them, to glory in them, to exalt them. That's what they wanted. And would men namely their ruling class, the Pharisees, would those men speak well of them and glorify them and exalt them and lift them up if they confessed Jesus to be the Christ? Now, they couldn't deny he was. They could not deny it. They believed that that was the Christ that they saw. But their love prevailed in the end. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Yes, they might have loved the praise of God. Yes, who doesn't want to be glorified by God and lifted up forever? But they didn't love it enough. It wasn't really that important to them. What really mattered was, do men glorify me? This is what flatterers do so well, by the way. They glorify us, and what do we want? We want to be glorified by men. And so what will they do? Tell us things to build us up while they spread a net for our feet. Oh, brother, you're so holy. You're so godly. You're so smart. Now let me sell you this bill of goods over here while I've got you glorifying you. And what do we want? Oh, please glorify me. And if we want that... There's your reward. That's it. They could not confess the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. They could not believe in the fullest sense of that term. They could sit on the outskirts of faith and say, yeah, I know, that's the Messiah. Who else is going to fulfill all these scriptures? No way. You could be raising the dead and opening the eyes of the blind. This, there was the forerunner who came before him. All the things match. This is him. But I'm not going to confess him because my love is too great. I'm flattered and depraved. I want to be spoken well of. 
Please turn over to John 17, page 1087. We're looking at the words glory and glorify. John 17, starting at verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Note here. God gave to his son, Jesus Christ, glory. The father gave glory to his son. What does the son do with that glory given to him by the father? Does he keep it to himself? No, he shares it with his body. That's the idea of oneness. Being united together in the body of Christ, the head shares the glory with the body Jesus, the head of his church, uniting his church to himself, gives glory to his spouse. Christ's glory given him by the Father, given to all the elect by Christ himself. He is the mediator, the conduit, the means by which that glory comes to them so that we can be with him where he is and what? Behold his glory. This is the beatific vision, the vision of the blessed, where the mind's eye beholds God and is transformed into his likeness. Please open to Romans chapter 5 concerning the glory that comes from God to his church. Verses 1 through 5, page 1137 of your pew Bibles. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. Notice here, remember how Christ said that you must be humbled before you can be exalted? What is he saying? Much the same thing, isn't it? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because by God's grace we have been justified freely through Christ Jesus. By believing in the promise of the gospel, we have peace with God. But not only so, we glory, we boast, we are exalted in the midst of the worst of circumstances. Tribulation. Tribulation is that wheel of oppression that rolls over you and crushes you as the grains were crushed in the ancient world with the wheel coming down hard to remove and to destroy but God says, patience, remaining under the wheel, having that capacity, that you may glory in as well, because what will it work for you? An exceeding weight of glory. Even the worst things, in other words, are working together for the glory of God's people. God is working it together for their good. Turn over to chapter 8. And we've looked at this recently. We'll look at it again, verses 17 through 21. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, 
if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Do you see this? We are united to Christ in such a way that his entire inheritance is whose? It's ours. Joint heirs with Christ. He's heir of all things. We are united to him. Therefore, we inherit what he inherits. And when he suffered, and we suffer with him even in this life, we will be glorified together with him. You see that? We are humbled first. Then is the exaltation. We go down so that we might go up rather than going up so that we might go down. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, the wicked want their pleasures now. What do they get later? Damnation. What do the godly have now? Suffering. What do they have later? Exaltation. Glory. And if you suffer in this life, he says, you can't really compare that with what glory and exaltation, when God lifts up his people forevermore, how can you even compare that? You can't. They are not worthy, he says, to be compared. It's not even on the same level. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What is that? The resurrection of the body. That liberty of glory, literally. That glorious liberty. That freedom that we will have to be immortal as our Lord and Savior is. Why? Because we are heirs together with him. He inherited everlasting life as the reward of his obedience, the merits of his work, and we united together with him, we get what he got. The whole inheritance is his. And we heirs together with Christ. Turn over to chapter 9, verse 22, the next page over. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Notice here, God's glorious riches. He lavishes them upon the elect. And as he has chosen them, what is their final destiny? Well, he says, glory. He has poured mercy upon these vessels. And that's because before the whole thing began, he prepared them. He fitted them. He suited them. He chose them. He predestinated them unto glory. And so glorification is the final, even as Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the beloved one. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation, so we were foreknown in him. As he was glorified, we will be glorified. Why? Because we are heirs together, predestinated in him. Please turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Page 1149, <clears throat> starting at verse 6, concerning the glorification of God's people. Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world, notice, unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither entered, have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, 
For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Did you see there? God had a mystery from all eternity that he had prepared and equipped, and he kept it under seal and lock. Why? For the glorification of his people. That in due time he would release this, he would bring it to pass, and he would cause it to be published through the preaching of the mystery of God's wisdom. And as the princes of this world who did not know this truth, they crucified the Lord of what? Glory, the master, the owner of glory. Who does he give it to? To us. And he prepared it from before the foundations of the world. The mystery of God's wisdom in the gospel was foreordained before the world. Why? For the glorification of the elect. That's why God did it. That's why it's been published. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, page 1162. We get into some of the brass tacks, as they say. What are the specifics of this glory? Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It, that is the body, it is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. And there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly. Note, we shall bear the image of a heavenly spirit, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Our bodies shall be like his bodies. They shall be glorious they shall be immortal. They will not be dishonored. They will not be corrupt. They will not be liable to sin or to death. No, rather, they shall be raised in incorruption, immortality, and glory. This is the glory of Christ in his people. He is a life-giving spirit. He is the true life that was manifest. And we are recreated in whose image? In the glorious image of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, please. Verses 15 through 18. Concerning the word of Almighty God, read by the Jews with blinded minds and read by Christians with opened minds. Starting there at verse 15. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we also, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord." Now notice here, the glory of Christians is not their own. It is a borrowed glory. You'll notice that it reflects and beams out from where? From the face of Jesus Christ. Did you know that face is etched upon the books of Moses? That's what he's talking about. When the Jews read the Old Testament, do they find Jesus the Christ there? No, they don't. They find some political Messiah and they want their little political state and they want everybody to support them and they want all Christians to bow down and worship them. In fact, they think that that's what the prophecies of the Old Testament teach. And if you read the gross letter of the Old Testament, sure, it says that. They're going to come down and bow down before the Jews. Who's it talking about? Not them. 
It's talking about someone else. It's talking about our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel and to whom all the nations shall bow. That's who it's talking about. So when they see the Old Testament, do they see Christ there? No, they do not. They see some little system of self-righteousness and works. I do this, don't do that. I follow this, I follow that. And what do I get at the end? Eternal life. That's what I get. Because I'm a good person, I do good things. Do good things, feel good. You know, I saw a t-shirt with that on it. Do good, feel good. That was the, the guy's life. Do good, feel good. That's what I do. Is that what they find in the Old Testament? Is that what Moses taught? No. So there's a veil that prevents them from seeing what's actually there. And when they turn to the Lord, God takes that veil and removes it. Now notice, as we behold the face of Christ, there reflected in the word of God, what happens to us? We are freed from the bondage of sin and death. That's the idea of liberty. And we are transformed as in a glass beholding the glory of the Lord. You remember Moses saw that. He saw it in the back parts of God. And God declared his name to him. What do we see? The front part, the face, not the back, the face, Christ's face, reflecting the glory of the gospel so that we are transformed from glory to glory, from one phase to the next to the next. That's what scripture does for Christians. We call it sanctification, growing in grace and in knowledge through the knowledge of the word of God and the gospel taught to us therein. Scriptural glory of Christ transforms us both once for all, that is the removal of the veil, and also progressively from glory to glory. Let's consider a few doctrines from these passages that we've looked at. First doctrine, glorification comes from God through Christ. Glorification comes from God through Christ. That's what we've seen. Glory comes from God, therefore it can't come from men. You can't have one and the other, right? If you have glory from men and you love it, you can't love the glory that comes from God. You can't believe in his son. You can't have eternal life. Glorification comes from God through Christ. Not from men, not from creatures, but from God through Christ. It is God's work. Just as much as justifying is God's work, which we saw, it is God that justifieth, who is he that condemneth, so also it is God that glorified, whom he did justify, them he also glorified. God glorifies. Christ is the resurrection, he is the life. He is the image of God. He's where we behold the face of God, the glory of God, and are transformed Election is unto eternal glory. All this is the work of God. Let us then, in response to this glorious work of God, give glory to God. That's the other usage made in the Bible of the word glory or glorify. It generally has to do with us glorifying God or refusing to. But here notice, as God has glorified and predestined us to glory, so we are to glorify him for his work, both in eternity past, in time, and in eternity, transforming us by his grace from glory to glory in the process of our lives, choosing us unto glory, predestinating us unto glory, and glorifying his son so that our glorification is secured. He who began that good work will complete it. This gospel wisdom was foreordained for our glory, so let us glory in God and what he has done for us. A second doctrine. As with our blessed Savior, the cross precedes the crown. As for Christ in his glory, so for the church in its glory. The cross precedes the crown. Sufferings before reigning. 
Those that suffer with him shall also be glorified together with him, the apostle said. This is a rebuke to our sluggishness, to our seeking of pleasure and ease. Is that what God calls warfare? To do nothing? To sit on our behind and please ourselves? To seek our own pleasure or comfort or ease above seeking first the kingdom and righteousness of God? Do you remember back in Judges? That was their whole problem, wasn't it? Okay, well, we have one whole tribe given over to idolatry. We'll wink at that. But we got one guy whose concubine got murdered. No, we're going to kill you all for that. You see, what was it that they really wanted out of life? My stuff, my rights, my things. Let us rather recognize God has called us to take up our cross, to suffer for his name. We must not be sluggish. We must not be seeking our own ease or our own lust or pleasure. This also rebukes the health and wealth gospel, which is what? God loves you and has an earthly plan to profit you, to give you stuff. That's what really matters in life. That's what you should seek ye first. The kingdom of your big, huge house and your private jet and your gold and silver and your Nikes, sneakies and all your nice stuff. That's what you should want out of life. No. Our blessed Savior suffered first, then he was perfected, he said. So us, God calls us to suffer for a little while so that he might purify us and prepare us for glory. Let us then gird up the loins of our minds and be sober. You remember this from the Apostle Peter. And in Titus chapter 2, all classes in the church are commanded to be sober. Old men, be sober. Young men, be sober. Old women, teach the young women how to be sober. Everybody's got to be sober. Why? Because we all tend to be inebriated with our own passions and desires. We all tend to be thrown off from thinking clearly by what we want. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Set your affections on things above, not upon the earth. Let us humble ourselves. Acknowledge that God is light and we are darkness. So then what must happen to our pride, to our self-glorification, to being glorified by men? We must smash it. We must destroy it. We must forsake it. And then we can think clearly, am I glorifying God? Am I seeking his will? Am I recognizing that God has called me to suffer for a little while so that I might be purified for eternal glory. And thus far, the consideration of God's holy word, the golden chain, the glorification of Christ's church.